And as we have read about that ransom price in 1 Peter last week, I pray that you would use these means to reinforce to our hearts the glory and the beauty of our salvation and the incredible price that Jesus Christ paid when he shed his blood in our place on the cross for our sin. Remind us, Lord, even as we turn to the pages of the Old Covenant, of how this anticipated moment fulfilled every former sacrifice of old, which was only type and shadow, and satisfied every requirement for our sins to be covered by a substitute Lamb of God, and prepared the way for us to be able to enter into the courts, into the presence, into the house, upon the mountain, Mount Zion, within the dwelling place of God Almighty. Because that atoning blood that was shed on the mercy seat, as it were, when Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our High Priest, our Prophet, our King, and our sacrifice, was killed for our, on our account. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would reinforce it to our hearts so that we have a deeper understanding and an appreciation, even as we touch upon the scriptures of old and the great hymn book for the ages, the Psalter. Now, as we turn to your scripture, open our ears to hear its incredible truths. And may we anticipate the gold and the treasure there contained like a miner who would sift away through the dirt and rejoice at finding a nugget or a gem that shines with the beauty of exclusive rarity and glory. Thank you, Lord, for the knowledge of salvation that your spirit has illumined to our heart. And again, may that call of salvation, even through the proclamation of your word, go forth to the lost this day, that more might turn and follow Christ, even as we seek to glorify you, believers in this room, by walking each day according to our faith. Be glorified in the rest of this service for the advancement of your kingdom and the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, we have the great privilege of turning together in our scriptures and reading Psalm 100 together. So would you turn there with me today, if you would? For several weeks now, I have been introducing the Psalms in this section as a set of Psalms which magnify Yahweh. When you see Lord again, all capital letters in your translation, that's a reference to the high and holy covenant name Yahweh in scripture. So we've had a set of eight psalms culminating with Psalm 100 this morning, which all magnify Yahweh as king. Yahweh not just king of a particular realm here or there, the way authorities, principalities organize themselves throughout the history on this globe, but indeed king of all the created world. All of the universe is his realm and his domain. So Psalm 100 is sort of, you could say, a doxology of this series. It's a call to worship, and it's a worshipful song, praising the Lord, praising Yahweh as King, because of these great themes that have preceded Psalm 100 and those that have gone before. The aim of this morning's message is to stir our hearts to worship by echoing the timeless call. That is, the timeless call to worship that comes to us from thousands of years ago in Psalm 100. The title of this morning's message is Rational Worship. Rational Worship, that means worship with good reason. Rational means to have a strong foundation, that that which is concluded or acted upon has a reasoned or well-established basis for doing so. And never more 
is worship to the Almighty God or displayed as rational when we see in Scripture evidence of His praiseworthiness, evidence of His glory. So Psalm 100 carries with it two themes along these lines, reasons to worship and a call to worship. Would you stand with me once again out of reverence for God's Word and listen as Psalm 100 is proclaimed in your hearing today. Just five verses, yet power-packed with the glories of our great God. Psalm 100, verse 1, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Let me remind you of the theme of Psalm 99, which we covered last month. Three times, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 9 in Psalm 99, we have this echo of the holiness of God. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is He. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God, worship at His footstool, holy is He. Again, the call to exalt, verse 9, exalt the Lord our God, worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Now, this theme of the holiness of the Lord is attended by an attitude of worship, which generally falls into the category of reverence. This is established in the psalm as well, in verse 1, let the earth quake. When we realize that God sits enthroned upon the cherubim, what is an appropriate response? When the Lord reigns and that is made aware or that is made clear to us in the proclamation of his authority, how should we respond? 99.1 tells us that we ought to tremble, we ought to quake, we ought to praise his great and awesome name. Psalm 99 and 100 round out themes of worship of Yahweh, complementing each other. Uh, they, in so doing, they display a full range of worship of Yahweh. Those full range of, of worship worthy of the King of Kings. Psalm 99 communicates, as we just noted, the solemnity, the seriousness, and the reverence inspired by the holiness of God, while Psalm 100 follows with choruses of joyful gladness and thanksgiving. Ours is a weighty joy, as one preacher put it. I believe John Piper used to use that phrase. Weight, indicating a seriousness. Joy, indicating a gladness. Psalm 99 and Psalm 100 taken as a set communicate this. God deserves a sober, a reverential, even a quaking and trembling awe and reverence and worship. But also, the worship should be that of joyful gladness, song, overflowing a relief and praise and blessing of His name and thanksgiving. Spurgeon comments further on Psalm 100 with this quote, It is a fit anticipation of the worship of heaven, where praise has absorbed prayer and become the sole mode of adoration. So this, the capstone of Yahweh as King Psalm, Psalm 100, anticipates a worship event in the future where we no longer cry out for deliverance from our hardships and from our sin. Why? 
because the fullness of deliverance has been realized in heaven one day. And then all there, there is then that remains to express to the Lord is not, oh, please deliver me from this pain, from this sorrow, and from this sickness, from this sin, but instead praise you for your deliverance, which has absolutely set me free in the full scale of salvation to the praise of your name forever. This is what he means when he says, Spurgeon commenting on this psalm, that it has that air of praise being absorbed in prayer and becoming the sole mode of adoration. Other commentators have added that this song anticipates the glories of heaven and the glories of the coming Christian revelation, Christ the Messiah coming to earth. Notice this quote. This psalm, this is a commentator, I'm not sure who it was, this psalm contains a promise of Christianity as winter uh, at its close contains the promise of spring. So he's using kind of a comparison to a cosmic changing of seasons. This psalm contains a promise of Christianity as winter at its close contains the promise of spring. The trees are ready to bud. The flowers are just hidden by the light soil. The clouds are heavy with rain. And the sun shines in his strength. Only a genial means a favorable wind from the south. That warm wind is wanted to give new life to all things. This psalm is anticipating. It's thick with suspense of a reality of a glorious future. Remember 1 Peter last week we talked about, <clears throat> or in recent weeks in 1 Peter, we spoke of this anticipation of the glories of the Lord or the grace that is yet future, forthcoming grace, grace upon the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fullness of His resurrection, realized by His resurrection bride, holds out hope of a glorious future. And this psalm is indicating as much. We open this morning service with a quote from Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. Isaiah prophesies of nations streaming to the mountain of the house of the Lord. <clears throat> he anticipates a day when a representative people from all the nations go up to hear tell of the glories of God, including his law. This begs the question, as this fulfillment unfolds in history, what song will they sing? We asked that question earlier. Well, surely Psalm 100 would be among the favorites and ought to be one of our favorites and ought to be on our lips even as we drive to this place on a Sunday morning. As the Lord gives you grace, perhaps you could set it to music, perhaps sing it. My family and I do that sometimes just on our way to church, sing the songs of ascent or songs that anticipate the glories of assembly where we have that opportunity in a corporate or unified sense to praise the Lord. It is a song that should accompany the entrance of His people through His gates. It gives them words of thanksgiving. It begs them to come into His courts with praise. Psalm 100 makes the case for true and spirit-filled worship. Remember John chapter 4, I believe, the woman at the well, and Jesus prophesies of a day where that whether this particular geographic location, you know, this argument between the Samaritans and the Jews, where should we worship, Jerusalem or in Samaria? And he says, there is coming a mountain of the Lord, if you will. Those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. And Psalm 100 anticipates and prophesies and gives a song for this kind of worship. It makes the case for true and spirit-filled worship succinctly, just five verses. Nevertheless, it is as powerful as it is brief. So that's an introduction to this song. Let me give you a heading for four points this morning. Psalm 100 assembles the covenant people of God. 
So what is an assembly? It's just a group, much like our little assembly here today. It's a gathering for a common cause. And the assembly of the people of God gathers to bring glory to His name, gathers to worship. And so there's a call, there's an uh, an invitation, if you will, a summons that goes forth in so many words in a call to worship, to call a people to royal assembly. And this has roots in the history, the liturgy of Old Testament worship, yet it has parallels even in our Lord's Day worship today. So Psalm 100 assembles the covenant people of God by issuing a call to worship, but also by proclaiming reasons for worship. So I want to introduce the structure of this message by giving you young people, you kids, a pop quiz. Kids, are you ready for a quiz today? Okay, I'm going to read you a couple verses, and I need you to tell me, is this a call to worship, or is this a reason for worship, okay? I'm going to read you two verses. You tell me if this is a call to worship or a reason for worship. You guys got it? You can handle this? Okay, when you know it, shout it out. Here we go. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. What do you guys think? Is that a call to worship or a reason for worship? Which one? Anybody? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Yeah, somebody said call to worship. That's exactly right. That's a call. Okay, I'm going to read the next verse, verse 3. Now again, you tell me, is this a call to worship or a reason for worship? Okay, here we go. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His people. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture, okay? So know that the Lord, He is God. Is that a call to worship or a reason for worship? A reason. Very good, Theo. Okay, verse 4. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Call or reason? Call or reason? Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Is that a call? That is correct. And one more, verse 5. For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and it's faithless to all generations. Call or reason? Reason is correct. So do you guys see the pattern there? The verses 1 and 2 open with a call to worship. Verse 3 follows with the reason for worship. Verse 5 again echoes a call to worship, and verse 5 uh, closes with another reason for worship. So Psalm 100 assembles the covenant people by issuing calls to worship, and by proclaiming reasons for worship. So that's our four points. Call reason, call reason. Pretty simple. Verses 1 and 2, reading again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. This is a call to worship. What is a call to worship? Well, imagine a king issuing a summons, an edict, or a decree. It's written instructions in some cases, or verbal instruction in others, was given to qualified messengers to go out through the realm and to proclaim and to make the word known that they are to appear, they are to answer to him in some way. The gospel carries with it these themes. What is the gospel? It's good news. It's a heralding proclamation. It's an announcement. It's an oracle. It's a body of information. It's a text, if you will, if it's in written form. It's an announcement in audio form that goes forth as an edict or a proclamation from the king. This is what a call to worship is. And it was quite literal at the time of the writing of Psalm 100. There would be a call that would go forth, sometimes via trumpet blast. And that trumpet blast was a symbolic call. It signaled to everyone, arrive, assemble. The one who is worthy of worship, Yahweh, 
the king of all the earth, is, is uh, due to receive our praise. Come and bring your thank offerings and your sacrifices. Bring your worship. Prepare your hearts. Make that journey and come, rise, assemble, ascend the hill of the Lord to worship him. This is kind of the uh, idea behind this issuing of a call to worship. Think of the time when Jesus was born, even there's secular equivalent of this as well, worldly equivalents of this as well, or parallels, perhaps you could say. There was an edict that went throughout all the land that all the land should be taxed when Jesus was born. That was a sovereign that was exercising his authority to issue a summons or a call. And if you didn't answer that summons, there would be consequences. Why? People recognized the authority and the sovereign Caesar who controlled their land and thought, we better do our best to obey, so they would obey. Well, in no less authority, yet much more glory, infinitely more so. And no less seriousness, but much more blessing, yes, infinitely more so. Our God issues a call to His covenant people to come and to worship. And so we heed His call when we come and worship in this place. And this is the idea of His summons, His decree, his issue or his uh, heralding gospel going forth, assembling the joyful or the uh, covenant people to come to the place of assembly and to make a joyful noise. So, in issuing this call, he gives three directives. First, it's exactly that, verse one make a joyful noise. So, <clears throat> how should you worship? Worship by making a joyful noise to the Lord of all the earth. Second directive in these first two verses serve the Lord. So, make a joyful noise. And then in verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Third directive, come into his presence with singing. So you hear the hear ye, hear ye, if you will, of the messenger going forth. Or you hear the trumpet blast in the distance signaling this uh, call. And then you get the body or you get the specifics of what the sovereign intends or directs you to do. And first among his directives in this initial call to worship is to make a joyful noise. God has designed us as created creatures to echo back to Him praises that are unique among all the animal kingdom. Indeed, what sets us, sets us apart from lower species, what makes us different than the animal kingdom, is that we bear, as the Scriptures say, the image of God. We have the ability to consciously reason and to form our thoughts into abstract ideas and to express them in sophisticated levels of speech that other animals could never dream and it would be absurd to imagine them doing, albeit we have those cartoons and so forth that personify animals and give them human characteristics and so forth. But everybody knows you would never go to a zoo and hear a group of monkeys philosophizing. That's something that's reserved for human beings. And in spite of a secular world that tells you you're nothing more than an advanced primate, no, you are qualitatively different. You're not just a more complicated ape. No, that is not true. You are a person made in the image of God with a call to express in thought, in idea, in word, in speech, and song, the glories of the God who created you. Now, the scriptures speak in sort of anthropomorphic, assigning human-type terms to other things as well. The scriptures say that the trees clap their hands, or the rocks will cry out, or the mountains sing for joy. What does that mean? Well, it's using the creative expression that is uh, given to human beings to express to the Lord as an analogy of other areas of creation, giving God glory as well. In other words, we give glory to the Lord 
by echoing back to him his great deeds, by our understanding of his renown and what he has done, and then forming that into joyful noise and song. The trees are more limited, but they do echo God's glory. They do so when they burst into life as he has designed them to, and they do so when they show forth the beauty of his handiwork as the green appears at springtime. Suffice it to say that we are to join creation in giving glory to the Lord because this is our created design. There is a summons that goes forth to the world, lost in its sin, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. In other words, there is no excuse. And this command goes to everyone. And there is no nation whose culture is sacrosanct, even though they're idolaters, and they avoid or do not know or are ignorant or rebellious of the God who made them and the God who revealed himself exclusively and unequivocally in his holy word. We live in a day and age where cultures are celebrated as a unique expression, so, so much so that, their per, that a person or a country's identity is tied up in their ethnicity such that if you were to convince them to worship according to the tradition of another nation, it would be to violate the essence of who they are. This is an un, at root, this is an unbiblical notion. Though there are unique aspects of culture and so forth within the array of what God has designed, Ultimately, there is a summons to every culture, every people, every individual, and every nation to worship only one God, the God who has made them and created them, given them consciousness, given them speech, given them the ability to think abstractly. And he calls them, he makes an, issue, uh, an edict and a decree to make a joyful noise, a directive to a specific object, to Yahweh. Make a joyful noise to who? To the Lord, to Yahweh. And who should do it? All the earth. Furthermore, he says, serve the Lord with gladness. And this anticipates um, what will come up later in the text of the relationship between man and God. We are more like sheep than we are a shepherd. We are the sheep, he is the shepherd. We are his people, he owns us. He is the master, we are the servant. Yes, he is the sovereign, we are the slave. That is a, a, a message that may not be popular today as well, but I submit the reason it isn't is because people want to celebrate their own autonomy. They want to pretend as if they are God and that they do not serve anyone but themselves and take offense at anyone who would subject them to their service. However, nevertheless, in spite of this rebellion, that's as old as original sin, the message goes forth, serve the Lord, all the earth, all the earth, with gladness. So this is a service that God calls us to that is attended by great joy. When we realize the beauty and the perfection and the glory and the power and the wisdom which is inscrutable and unsearchable of our master, we want to, we long to, we take joy in submitting to him. Why? Because he knows better than we do what is good for us. And when we in faith trust that he in his revelation, in his scriptures, hold out, holds out hope for us, even as he is glorified in our good, now we begin to heed the call, the summons to serve the Lord with gladness and to make a joyful noise to him. And then thirdly, that directive, come into his presence with singing, into his presence you guys remember the story of Esther? She was the queen in that uh, era of impressive monarchy in the Middle East. So could Esther just walk into the king's presence? Well, she could, but the king reserved the right to refuse 
her communion with him. And guys, what does a king hold in his hand? You walk up to the king. Yes, a scepter. That's correct. And that scepter, it uh, signifies, it symbolizes his authority. And oftentimes in history of kingdoms, he would extend that scepter. And if he did, it was a gesture of favor. You are welcome into my presence. In other words, in this uh, featured prominently in the story of Esther appearing before the king. That is to say, the king reserves the right to guard his presence, and he grants favor to those with whom he uh, wants to commune with. And as we realize this in light of the glory and the holiness of our God, we, and then we read, this summons come into his presence with singing. Our hearts should overflow with the implications of such a thing. In other words, when Esther approached the king, she was fearful, nervous. It took her a long time to get up the courage to communicate to the king that which was really on her mind. It wasn't until the third meeting when she finally got up the bravery to do so. Esther did not come into the presence of her king, even though he was her husband, with singing. She came with fear and trepidation, nervousness and a timidity of sorts until God gave her the grace and boldness to finally speak her mind. There is a relationship, however, between us and our king, in spite of his glorious holiness, so far surpassing any other monarchy, that the way has been prepared, and the scepter of his favor has been extended to us such that we can come into his presence with singing, with celebration, with joy, with a glorious thankfulness, or a thankfulness that giving glory to Him because He has made a way to commune with us in a way where He seeks our presence, enjoys our presence, and we celebrate in His presence. What is the cost of this favor? It's the same as what we talked about last week, the ransom price for our redemption. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God does not allow you to come into His presence with joyful singing because he just loves you so much, he thinks you're cute, and he wants to cuddle with you and spend a lot of time with you. That's not the nature of the relationship well described. That might describe relationship between you and your puppy dog. But the reason that God extends that scepter of favor to you such that you can, with relief, sing a joyful song as you enter into his presence is because he recognizes the power and the value of the blood of his son. And because Jesus' blood is so powerful, and because it's so precious and did such a thorough work cleansing us from our sin, we can rejoice. We can sing boldly and confidently in the presence of the Lord because we come before Him with the robes of Jesus Christ's own righteousness without fear of rejection, without fear of judgment, without fear of being cast out, without fear of tainting His glory. And so this is the idea and the fulfillment in New Testament terms of what was signaled in Psalm 100, the assembly of the covenant people. They're called to worship in verses 1 and 2. Psalm 100 assembles the covenant people, secondly, by proclaiming reasons for worship. And note these in verse 3, our first set of reasons. Know that the Lord, He is God, it is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So again, there's a call to worship. 
And now there's an appeal to knowledge. Remember the title? Rational worship. Why do we worship? Well, we worship and realize the call to worship and so forth and uh, based upon knowledge. In other words, there's a relationship between theology and doxology, if you will. Theology is the study of God, His nature, His character, His word, broadly speaking. Doxology is the worship of the Lord. The, uh, the charge in verse 3 is to know. Now that word uh, signals a, uh, that which a, a student would pursue, knowledge, understanding. Theology, as such, is the impetus and foundation of true worship. In other words, we worship the Lord not because it makes us feel good, but because we know that He is God. Our worship, true worship, in spirit and truth springs out of a conviction of the heart and a rooting of the soul, an understanding of the mind of who we are, sinners, and who our great God is, the Holy Redeemer. Now, there, it's popular these days to consider knowledge and the intellectual pursuit of who God is as a stumbling block. Some assume that theology is a stumbling block to true worship. Not so. Psalm 100 teaches otherwise. Psalm 100 teaches that the head and the heart, if you will, the knowledge of the intellect and the heart expression of emotion and feeling and desire, they are mutually engaged. The head and the heart are mutually engaged in the highest expressions of worship. If it's heart only, it is worthless sentimentalism. If it's head only, then it probably serves just to impress and to puff up ourselves. But when you marry the two, when the two come together, you have Psalm 100's vision for godly worship. This presumes the right use of theological knowledge, not the exaltation of ourselves to project our expertise, not the satisfaction of superiority in an intellectual context, contest with fellow students of the Bible or purveyors of worldly philosophy. Instead, the holy deployment of biblical knowledge in adoration, praise, blessing, service, thanksgiving, and joyous expressions of gladness and song. When we read the Scriptures, when we acquire more, acquire more knowledge about the Lord, that is meant to inform and to burst forth and to bear the fruit of worship. Godly understanding... Godly study of the Scriptures should be used in the holy deployment of adoration, praise, blessing, service, thanksgiving, and joyous expressions of gladness and song. Now, what should we know that would inform, undergird, and provide a reason, rational worship? We should realize the absolute authority of our Lord. Know that the Lord, He is God. He is the Lord over all the earth. This absolute authority of God implies that He is in a class different than us. As we mentioned before, part of His holiness, or His holiness in part contains this idea of sacred set apart in a class of His own. Our God is the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant keeper, the one who is responsible for all the created realm and responsible for reconciling that which was lost and fallen in sin unto Himself through His means of redemption. Know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other sovereign, there's no other ruler, no other authority who could ever seek to be 
successful in usurping his throne. The very thought and the notion, the ambition is absurd. And every king or idea that tries has proven so in the course of history. So the knowledge of the absolute authority of God informs our worship. These are the terms, uh, by the way, of our relationship to the Lord. He is God. He is the covenant keeper. We are lesser. This continues in verse 3, this knowledge. It is He who made us and we are His. He is the absolute authority. He is the sole creator. And as such, He owns us. He is our master. It is He who made us, and we are His. And then he continues, we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. He has not made us co-equals with Him in the sense that He shares His glory and authority and Godhead with us. No, a blasphemous thought indeed. We are His. He has made us, but He has made us as sheep. He is the shepherd. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And as we understand the Lord, He is sovereign, He is above, He is glorious. Yet we are elevated to the position that He has created us for, though lesser than Him, nevertheless welcomed into His presence to bring glory to His name when we realize that He alone is God. He alone is the absolute sovereign. He alone is the creator of all the material realm. He is the creator of us. And as such, He has the right to decree, to determine, to establish, to issue His law and His precepts for us to walk in. He has the right to establish the order of our life, our identity, our sexuality, our our, uh, society, the order of relationships within marriage, uh, parents to children, uh, slaves to masters, employers to employees, and so forth. We see this throughout the Scriptures. The order of who we are and where we fit and what we are is not established by us. You guys... I'm sure familiar with popular you know, culture these days. You hear things like, uh, uh, that's your truth, or keep pursuing my truth, that's a common phrase, or you do you, or something like that. And these notions are blasphemous and idolatrous. It's the, there's so much language in our culture that presupposes that each individual person has the right to define themselves. That is not true. You have no right to establish your own identity according to your own terms. Why? Well, this knowledge right here tells you why. Because the Lord is God. You are not your own God. It is He who has made you. You didn't make yourself. And you are His people, His person, if you will, the sheep of His pasture. You don't lead yourself. You follow your good shepherd or you're going to be in real trouble. Run out of food and run off a cliff really quick. So these are reasons for worship. There are also terms that indicate our relationship to our great God. And they are not popular in our culture today. However, they are necessary grounding for true worship. We worship a God that is higher than us. That's why the language of Scripture in, with respect to Lot and Abram is important in Genesis 14. I remember Lot lifts up his eyes to the valley. And in uh, context there, it's an expression of the affections directed towards something. And this direction of lifting up one's eyes is associated with that which he holds as important and reveres as a God or an ideal. And Abraham lifted up his eyes to what God directed him toward. God says, lift up your eyes, and then the covenant promises are laid before him. The message in Scripture is to lift up your eyes to God alone and do so in worship, recognizing his uh, sole position as as the authority, as the creator, as the shepherd, as the master. Our culture absolutely hates the idea of slavery to anyone or anything. 
such that it gets pretty confusing. They will use the history of wicked slavery, chattel slavery, and, you know, uh, ethical oppression and so forth in the history of America to so, uh, as an excuse, to reject the concept of slave and master outright. The scriptures tell us, though, that slavery is an inescapable concept in the identity of a human being. We, according to the Bible, are slaves to one of two things. We're slaves to the flesh, slaves to sin, or we are slaves to God and His servant. And his servants. So slavery is an inescapable reality. You are not a God. You are not uh, the creator. You can't sustain yourself. You can't predict the future. You can't create heaven on earth. You can't organize with your fellow man to overthrow God and establish a utopia. No, you are a slave. So which will it be? Will you remain a slave in your sin? Or will you worship and serve your creator and God who has made a way for you be, to be united to him by giving his son as the purchasing sacrifice for that communion. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Reasons for worship. Now, a second call is given in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Again, Psalm 100 assembles the covenant people by issuing a call to worship and then giving reasons for worship and now issuing a second call. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Here in the second call to worship, there's three directives. Again, enter his gates and courts. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It's really a parallel to verse 2, come into his presence with singing. Just remember that gates and courts refer to royal points of entry. So the royal palace is only open to those who have permission by the king by the sovereign to go in. And there's even a sort of castle doctrine in American law, which recognizes the sovereignty of someone's habitation, their dwelling place. Whoever owns the house has the right to guard the door. And if the door is locked and it's late at night, in many if not most states, and someone tries to bang that door and come in, you can shoot them blindly and not be held responsible for murder. Why? Because you're protecting your gates, your castle, your presence from an unwelcomed intruder. So this castle doctrine, and if it, if it applies justly to something like civil law, how much more so the Lord? What does God own, ultimately speaking? Where, is, where are His courts? And where is the gates of His realm? Well, if His kingdom extends to all the known universe, then He reserves the right to banish you from his kingdom at any given time. And this is a fearful thought unless we have the assurance that we are welcome there. But remember, you're breathing his air. You're living in his world. You're walking on his earth that he spoke into being by the word of his power. You're talking to an individual who was knit together in their mother's womb before they were even a thought in their mom or their father's mind. It is God who fearfully and wonderfully designs and fashions each of the individual billions of persons on this earth. So the breath that you uh, breathe and the food that you eat and the sun that you enjoy and the seasons that come and go and provide by that means the nourishing of life on this planet, all that is the Lord's. So enter His gates, the gates of even His world with thanksgiving. Why do we pray? It's a tradition at Christian homes to pray before each meal. Probably most all of us in this place do so. 
rather than letting that just be a rote tradition, you know, one you forget the meaning of, consider that when you take that food, that you are entering the gates of God's provision with thanksgiving. That food is His, but He has granted it to you by His grace. Enter His courts with praise. Now, more specifically, these verses reference not just His created world, but the place of communion with the people. Temple worship, tabernacle worship. That is a royal guarded habitation. The castle doctrine, if you will, of God's temple was that no impurity would be allowed through the doors. And so only those who are purified and cleansed in that ritual washing could enter into the Holy of Holies. And in the same way, no one enters relationship with the Lord without the substantial purification and cleansing of Jesus' blood and His righteousness. And then and only then can we go through the veil, as Hebrews said, says, and in so doing, enter His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise and give thanks to Him and bless His holy name. The wise men, though they were dignitaries, you remember at Jesus' birth, though they were important men by the world's accounting, they recognized they were in the presence of one greater still. Though an infant before him, God had revealed to their hearts the significance of the Messiah. So what did they do? They entered his gates with thanksgiving, they entered his courts with praise, and they blessed his name, even in giving these precious gifts that signaled their allegiance, answering the summons to call to, and call to worship, traveling from the coastlands, a distant land, bringing gifts worthy of their Savior, at least the best they could afford, and coming and bowing before their infant Savior or their toddler Savior and offering to Jesus Christ. Christ, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were fulfilling Psalm 104 in real time at the moment of incarnation, entering the gates, going into that royal guarded habitation of the Lord in the presence of Jesus Christ, giving Him praise, giving Him thanks, and blessing His name. Last point this morning. Again, the structure of our text is call, reason, call, reason. Issuing a call to worship, proclaiming reasons for worship, We just covered a second call to worship, and now our author closes with more reasons for worship in verse 5. For the Lord is good. So by implication, you could preface that with this clause. Why do we worship? We worship because the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. More reasons to worship. Not just absolute authority that He is the sole creator. He is the shepherd and master. We are the people, the sheep of His pasture. But furthermore, we worship because of His eternal goodness. We worship because of His steadfast love. And we recognize as a final reason for worship in this passage here, His generational faithfulness. His eternal goodness is evident in creation. Think of the creation week when the world was, when God said that uh, let there be light and there was Kids, and God saw that it was, and the evening and the morning were the first day, right? So that formula of proclamation of the goodness of creation was echoed six times. So God creates light, says it was good. The heavenly bodies, they are good. The creatures that fill earth, sky, and seas, and he says that they are good. And finally, what did God create on day six, kids? Day six, an important element of his creation. Very good, Adam and Eve and the land creatures, as I recall. And then, once again, he pronounces them good. All of creation testifies to the goodness of the Lord. And to the degree that we do not honor him as creator, as this psalm bids us to do so in its prior call, 
We are oblivious, ignoring, and rebelling against His goodness. But His goodness surrounds us. If God declares something good, you better believe that it is overflowing with bounty and goodness. And it is only the sinful and the only man's sinfulness that obscures the glories of what God has displayed, even in His general revelation, and even more so in His special revelation. And these testify, they shout, they proclaim that He is good. Everything from the world that springs to life around us at uh, the changing of the seasons. Everything from the glorious heavens above, which have a splash of stars on, that we're unable to count, and so on and so forth. By these reasons, God has demonstrated His goodness in creation, and furthermore, today we see testified His goodness in His Word. This is a reason for worship. But more specifically, His steadfast love. Does anyone remember, maybe you adults in the room, a little tougher question, do you remember the Hebrew word for steadfast love that is so common in the Old Testament Scriptures? It starts with an H. Anyone remember that word? Steadfast love in Hebrew? Uh, yeah, close, close. That's it, that's it. And Sue got it. She got the prize. Hesed. So in Hebrew, something like Hesed, H-E-S-E-D, it's usually transliterated in English. That word is absolutely sticks out like a beacon, like a lighthouse, beaming with the light of God's redemptive purposes all through the Old Testament. Chesed is the Hebrew for God's steadfast love. And you recall through our psalm series, it comes up again and again. It is the gospel of grace proclaimed to us in old covenant terms. The steadfast love of the Lord, that is to say, endures forever in spite of our sin. The steadfast love of the Lord endures in spite of the fall. The steadfast love of the, of the Lord will keep His covenant in spite of the faithless, faithlessness and the stumblings of those who have been in the long line of significant sons. The steadfast love of the Lord will preserve against all enemies and all odds the seed of the Messiah until such time, thousands of years after it was prophesied to Abraham, Jesus Christ was born of Mary. This is a steadfast love. Think of how important this would have been at the time. Messiah had not come yet, but they knew some things about him, that he would come of the seed of Abraham. They knew that there was a lineage of both prophecy and a bloodline that had to be preserved and had to be fulfilled in order for salvation to be realized in its fullest sense and history future. And so it was the faithful who clung to the promising or the, the, the power of God's promise keeping. They clung to his steadfast love. Hence, the theme and the motto and the message, the faith statement, the profession, the confession of the saints of old was His steadfast love. His has said endures forever. This is for worship because God keeps His promises, preserves the bloodline of the Messiah, will fulfill the terms and conditions necessary for our salvation and will do so in his perfect time against all odds, destroying all enemies, fulfilling all particulars. His faithfulness, after all, is to all generations. As we close this message, we've just realized reasons that pertain to the means of relationship with the Lord in verse 5. We had terms of relationship greater to lesser in verse 3, and now we have prophecy, we have echoes of the means of relationship in verse 5. That is to say that we are His people because of His steadfast love. That we can come into His presence with singing. We can serve Him with gladness. We have reason to make a joyful noise because He is faithful to all generations. 
His steadfast love was never more poignantly demonstrated than in sending His Son to die for us. Christ uh, came, He first, we love Him, in fact, the Scriptures go on to say in Apostolic Revelation, we love Him because He first loved us, gave Himself in our place for our sin. And in this mighty act, in redemptive history, the steadfast love of the Lord was demonstrated and His faithfulness to all generations was confirmed. And this message has not been lost to the times of history. It has not been lost in the chaos of events that follow with each generation of sinners born on this fallen globe. No, this legacy continues. God preserves it. Why? Because His steadfast love endures forever. Because He is good. Because His faithfulness has extended even saints in this room, to our generation. And if the psalmist could marvel at God's faithfulness, having recorded and having a record of the generations that preceded him and God's faithfulness to his promise through the sons and seed of Abraham, how much more us with the vantage point of Scripture fulfilled in the incarnation and then the testimony in church history of his preserving a remnant through the ages all the way up to our time and our location. How much more inspiration ought we draw, having witnessed thousands of years of evident faithfulness and innumerable compounding reasons to worship. Rational worship, that is, reason-grounded praise, joyful noise, serving with gladness, coming into His presence with singing, ought to burst forth from us as people. So let us apply this message. Let us enter His courts with praise acknowledging Him at every waking opportunity. Let us give thanks to Him and bless His holy name the next time we gather in this place. And let us remember why we do so. Because He is God. He has made us. We are His. He is our shepherd. We are His sheep. We are His people. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness endures to all generations. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the power of your revelation communicated through your holy scriptures to our hearts. We know that the active ingredient in any message like this is the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity, applying these words and activating them unto praise that's worthy of your name, unto faithfulness that is more in line with your scripture, unto honor, Lord, that is deserving of your throne. We pray that you would use it in this way. For those that may be in the hearing of this message who have never bowed, and reverence, and fear, and in accepting the ransom price for their sins before the sovereign of all the earth, before the Lord, before the King, before the one who made them. I pray that they would repent of their sin, their rebellion, their self-worship, their idolatry. They would turn and from their sin in repentance and place faith and hope in Jesus Christ for their forgiveness. And as they do so, I pray that they would join us hearing this call to worship in entering your gates with thanksgiving, and entering your courts with praise, giving thanks to you and blessing your holy name. May you be glorified in your church, and may you grow your church by the progress of the gospel, even in this generation, recognizing your faithfulness, Lord, endures forever, your steadfast love endures forever, and your faithfulness extends even to us and to all generations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.